You've heard me talk about the first catechism. I hope you have. If you've been here a while, you certainly have heard this. First catechism asks the question, the first catechism asks the question, what is the chief end of mankind? What is the chief end of mankind? The answer, of course, is to glorify God, and I like the way John Piper puts it, to glorify God by enjoying him forever. But have you ever thought about what the chief end of God is? I I can't say I've ever seen that in a catechism. I love the catechisms, by the way. For those of you who have children and grandchildren, let me exhort you to use the catechism for your children and, and to teach your children to use them for your grandchildren. Catechisms are, are great ways of teaching the truth. But today's message is going to attempt to answer this very important question, and, and we're going to do it um, by sweeping through the entire Bible. Don't, don't freak out, all right? You say, that's going to take a long time. No, it won't. <laughs> and by the time we're done, I hope you're going to be able to answer the ultimate question of life. I think the ultimate answer, the ultimate question of life really is, what is the chief end of God? Or I've, I've put it in my own words, what is God's goal in history? What is God's goal in history? By the way, I want to thank God for his means of grace in my own life in using various pastor theologians. Uh, I'm very indebted to people like John Piper and even 1700s, uh, the pastor in the United States by the name of Jonathan Edwards. He's, God's used these men in my life to help me to think deeply and to think profoundly in, in a, about important things in Scripture like this question, what is God's goal in history? In his excellent book, Desiring God, John Piper said this, it's on the screen, quote, God's ultimate goal in all that he does is to preserve and display his glory. Do you believe that? God does everything to accomplish that goal right there. Everything. God's ultimate goal in all he does is to preserve and display his glory. In other words, God is uppermost in his own affections. That's another way of saying it. He prizes and he delights in his own glory above everything else in his universe. And this message, by the way, is going to present the the biblical evidence to prove that statement right there. Uh, What I want to do is just kind of do a a very brief flyover the entire Bible. Think of yourself getting an airplane and flying over the forest called the Bible. That's kind of like what we're going to do in a moment. Many people like to think of the Bible as redemptive history. That's a good way of looking at it. So we'll just kind of do a flyover of redemptive history to see why God does what he does. But let me just set the stage here because there's, there's some terms that sometimes we, we may think we understand, but maybe we don't. What is God's glory? Or what is the glory of God? The Bible tells us to do all to the glory of God, but what, what is that? How do we do that? What does it mean? Well, the term glory of God in the Bible generally refers to his visible splendor or his moral beauty, his manifold perfections. It's really an attempt to put into words what cannot be contained in words. It's, can you put God in a box? No, of course you can't. <laughs> that's, that's what people are trying to do when we use that, that, that phrase in the Bible, the glory of God. It's, it's who God is, essentially. Think of it, how do you describe what what God is like in his unveiled excellence and majesty. How do you do that? Well, the closest thing we can get in one phrase is the glory of God. And even that doesn't do it justice. Another term which can signify much the same thing is the name of God. When Scripture speaks of doing things for God's namesake, 
It means virtually the same as doing it for his glory. The name of God is, by the way, not just his label. It's not his name tag. It's not, uh, it, it really is a reference to his own character. God has lots of names and titles in the Bible, and those things are all, all meant to, to help us to understand God more. They're referring to his character. The term, by the way, glory, simply makes more explicit the character of God for us. But this, this, this is implicit in the term name when it refers to God. His name is, 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 is part of his character. And that's why the Bible talks about you need to be careful with your name. Your name is, is something to be guarded and protected. It's something to be honored. So what I want to do is just do an overview with Will. Some of the high points of, of redemptive history so you can get the flavor of the entire Bible very quickly by, by doing this. And I think uh, you, it should be clear by the time we're done here. What, what is God's goal in history? Scripture makes clear the purpose of God. And so what I just want to do is, is make sure we're all in a, in a good understanding of this. I want to help you discover this unifying goal of God in the Bible. So we need to start really where God starts, I think, which is in Genesis chapter 1. Of course, the Old Testament was written first. And the Old Testament starts, at least our Bibles start with Genesis chapter 1. And it starts with God creating, so that's where I want to start today. Let's start where God starts, which is with him creating in Genesis 1. Let's look at the words of the living God, starting in verse 26. Verse 26, Genesis 1, 26. Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. We'll stop there. The biblical story of creation reaches its climax here on day six in the creation of man or mankind. And notice God said that he made male and female, and they're both made in his image. Now, there's four things that should be noted, noted here about this climactic act that God does here on day six of creation. Number one, man is created as the last of all God's works and therefore is the highest creature, the only one made in God's image, the only one. Number two, only man is said to be in the image of God, and that makes him superior to everything else in God's creation. Number three, only now that man is on the scene in the image of God, does the writer describe the work of creation as being very good. That's in verse 31. Verse 31, then God saw everything he had made, and indeed it was very good. God said it was good before, but now that he's made man, God says it's very good. Number four, man's given dominion and commanded to subdue and fill the earth. That's chapter 1, verse 28. So what is man's purpose here? Okay, We, we often tend to be very proud and arrogant and self-centered and, and think the universe revolves around us. Of course, that's where humanism comes from. But what is man's purpose here according to God's word? Well, according to the text, it says that, Creation exists for man. 
But since God made man like himself, man's dominion over the world and his filling the world is really a display of not man. It's not a display of man. That's, that's not its purpose. It's, it's a display of God. God's aim was that man would act in a way that he is he's reflecting God. He's mirroring forth God's image. Man's given the exalted status of an image bearer here. And it's not for the purpose of so that we could be arrogant and proud and autonomous and we could do whatever we want. That's not why God did this. But that's, by the way, that's what happened in the fall, Genesis 3. But that's, that's not the original purpose for creating us. God created us so we would reflect the glory of the Creator. God's purpose in creation was to fill the earth with His own glory, in other words. That's what I'm trying to say. He was trying to fill the earth with His own glory. Not yours, not mine. So that's where it all started. And the greatest problem with the fall of Genesis chapter 3 is that man tried to take the glory away from the Creator. That's the greatest problem there. Well, then we move on to another huge section of Scripture that's very significant. In Genesis chapter 11, we have the Tower of Babel. The Tower of Babel is in chapter 11, Genesis 11. Let's read the first four verses together. Again, these are the words of the living God. We need to take note and realize the significance here. Genesis 11 says, verse 1, Now the whole earth had one language and one speech. It came to pass as they journeyed from the east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar, and they dwelt there. Then they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They had brick for stone, and they had asphalt for mortar. And they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower whose top is in the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. Let's stop there. You say, I, I, I don't get it. Why, why are we reading this? this, this <laughs> well, the point of the story here is to show how fallen mankind fought. And by the way, this is how we still think. <coughs> this is how we still think. It shows God's purpose for man, but there's a key phrase here. The key phrase is, let us make a name for ourselves lest we be scattered. That's in verse 4. That's the way they were thinking. They wanted to make a name for themselves lest they be scattered. That's our instinct, by the way. Our instinct is self-preservation. The instinct of self-preservation is, is in fallen man, we, we seek to fulfill ourselves. We don't want to trust God. We want to exalt our name. But God wants his name to be exalted. And so, what is man doing here, though? Man is employing his own human genius. He's trying to make a name for himself. He's self-centered, self-focused. It's glory of self. And this, by the way, was contrary to God's purpose for man. And we know it's contrary to God's purpose because look at the result. Look what God did to these people. God frustrated their efforts, didn't he? He stopped them from building the tower. And by the way, God's been frustrating our purposes ever since. You ever wonder why some people are so frustrated in life? 
if they're self-centered and self-focused and proud and trying to do things in their, their own ways, and their religion is humanism, they're going to be frustrated. They are not going to be complete and fulfilled. So God's purpose was that he would be given credit for man's greatness and that man would depend on him and trust in him, but they weren't doing that. Now this is going to be more evident as we look at what God did in the next passage. Turn over to Genesis 12. In Genesis chapter 12 here, we, we're going to see the call of Abram. This is one of the most significant passages in, in all of Genesis. We see how God wants to get the credit, to receive the glory in, in many passages. But I want you to take note of what God is doing here with, with an idolater, by the way. This man is an idolater. He wants nothing to do with God until God intervenes in his life. And calls him. Genesis 12, verse 1. Now the Lord had said to Abram, Get out of your country, from your family, and from your father's house, to a land that I will show you. Verse 2. I will make you a great nation. Who, who's, who's the subject of the sentence there? The subject is I. Who's that? That's God. God is the one doing the action here. God's saying, I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great and you shall be a blessing. This is a major turning point in the Bible. And at this major turning point in God's dealing with mankind, because he hasn't done this at this point, he, he's calling Abraham, he, and he's beginning his dealings with a particular people. Abraham's known as the father of Israel, right? There's a clear contrast between what God says here and actually what happened at the Tower of Babel, isn't there? God says that he's going to make Abraham's name great. He's the one who's doing the action. But at the Tower of Babel in chapter 11, who's doing the action there? It's the people, right? There's this explicit contrast from chapter 11 to chapter 12. Man wanted his own name to be great in Genesis 11, but in Genesis 12, God wants his name to be great. And so he purposely picks an insignificant idolater who has no children and makes something great of him. And so the key difference here is when man undertakes to make his own name great, he's taking the credit. He's, it's his accomplishments, and God doesn't get the glory. But when God undertakes to make a person great, then who should get the glory? Well, the only proper response then is to trust and and, and, and it's to have gratitude for God. All the glory should go back to God, which is, of course, where it belongs. Abraham proved himself to be very different, by the way, from the builders of the Tower of Babel in chapter 11. We see that Abraham trusted God, didn't he? We see in Hebrews 11, he was a man of faith. Read Romans chapter 4. He was a man of faith, and God accounted him righteous for that. The Apostle Paul, by the way, speaking of Romans 4, shows us a link between Abram's faith and God's glory. There's a link there. I want you to see this. It's on the screen. Romans 4, verses 20 and 21 says, No distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith, giving glory to God. Do you, do you see the link there? The link 
between his faith and the glory of God is strong here. By the way, the last part of the verse says, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. So where was his faith? What was the object of Abram's faith? It was God and his promises. So there's a contrast here between the Tower of Babel and Abram. The children of Abraham were chosen of God to be God's special people. They were to trust in him and they were to give him glory. Well, how did they do? Sometimes they did okay, didn't they? But a lot of times they did a horrible job, didn't they? And we can see this in several places. But let's look at the Exodus. We go from Genesis to the book of Exodus. But I don't want you to just think of the book of Exodus. I want you to think of the Exodus. By, by the Exodus, I mean the Exodus from Egypt. We have the period of the patriarchs taking place in, in Genesis. It started with Abraham, then Isaac, Jacob. The people of Israel spent several hundred years expanding, if you will, and and growing. Maybe some said even up to two million people there in the land of Egypt. But they eventually became slaves in the land of Egypt, the Bible says. They cried to God for mercy, and in response, God undertook to deliver them, and God raised up Moses who was the prince of Egypt, to accomplish his purposes. And he brought them through the wilderness to the the promised land of Canaan. God's purpose, by the way, and deliverance from Egypt is recorded for us in the Bible. It wasn't just to, to answer their prayer and deliver them from Egypt. God had a far greater reason for this, and we can even read about it in Ezekiel. Turn to Ezekiel the prophet Ezekiel. Go past Psalms, Proverbs. Go past Ecclesiastes. Keep going. Go past Jeremiah, and you'll get to Ezekiel chapter 20. Ezekiel chapter 20 gives us God's purpose in why he delivered the Israelites from Egypt. Ezekiel 20, starting in verse 5. Ezekiel 20, verse 5. Thus says the Lord God, On the day when I chose Israel, I swore to the offspring of the house of Jacob, making myself known to them in the land of Egypt. I swore to them, saying, I am the Lord your God. Ezekiel 20, verse 6. On that day I swore to them that I would bring them out of the land of Egypt into a land that I had searched out for them a land flowing with milk and honey, the most glorious of all lands. And I said to them, cast away the detestable things your eyes feast on, every one of you, and do not defile yourselves with the idols of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. But they rebelled against me and were not willing to listen to me. None of them cast away the detestable things their eyes feasted on, nor did they forsake the idols of Egypt. Then I said, I will pour out my wrath upon them and spend my anger against them in the midst of the land of Egypt. But I acted for the sake of my name, that it should not be profaned in the sight of the nations among whom they lived, in whose sight I made myself known to them in bringing them out of the land of Egypt. Did you see that in verse 9? Why did God act? Why did God do what he did? He says, I acted for the sake of my name. So it's clear that the deliverance from Egypt here was not due to the worth of the Israelites. 
oh, that, that's our humanistic way of thinking, isn't it? You know, we're, we're special. We're worth a lot. <laughs> not, not, not really. In this case, it was the worth of God's name is why he acted. He acted for the sake of his name, for his glory. So God's purpose was to act in a way to, that, that, well, really, that caused people to really own up to God's glory. God wanted them to confess that he is the only Lord of the universe. He wanted them to know him. So the great event of the Exodus really should have made this clear. Should have made it clear to all the generations that God's purpose was with Israel was to glorify himself. He wanted to create a people who would trust in him and worship him alone, delight in his glory. But as we can see, sadly, they didn't do a good job of that. Well, let's move on to the giving of the law. The giving of the law in Exodus chapter 20. We see after they came out of Egypt, they crossed over the Red Sea. They came to a mountain called Horeb or Sinai. God called Moses to go up on the mountain. God gave the Ten Commandments as well as all the other laws to the Israelites. God was trying to create this special people, this new community. And at the very head of this law, we have Exodus chapter 20, verses 3 through 5. Let's read these together here, okay? Exodus 20, verse 3 says, You, that's the Israelites, shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a graven image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me. So when God says here in Exodus 20, we may have no other gods before him, and that he's also saying he is a jealous God, he means... That his first aim here, his most important purpose, if you will, his goal in giving the law is that, that we would give him the honor that he alone is due. There are no other gods. By the way, he had just shown himself gloriously gracious and powerful, didn't he? They had seen the ten plagues in Egypt. They saw the pillar of fire and all this stuff, the crossing of the Red Sea. They, they saw all this stuff. And now he's simply demanding in the law an appropriate response for his people. Do you know what that response is? By the way, the same response you and I should have. Same response, that we should love him and keep his commandments. Jesus repeated this command in the New Testament. The response to a, a big glorious, gracious, and powerful God is to love Him and keep His commandments. By the way, to love God doesn't mean <clears throat> to meet His needs as if He needs anything. God doesn't need anything. He doesn't need air to breathe. He doesn't need to sleep. He doesn't need food. He doesn't need water. He doesn't. There's nothing God needs. What are we to do? We're to delight in Him. We are to be captivated by his glorious power and grace that's what it means to love god we shouldn't love him because he, we, he needs it he doesn't but he demands it 
Well, all the rest of the commands are really the kinds of things that we will do from our hearts if we get this first part then, don't we? If we love God with all, then all the other commands aren't an issue then, are they? If our hearts are truly delighting in God, then you're going to obey him, aren't you? That's what Jesus said. If you love me, keep my commandments. Well, let's move to the period of the wilderness wanderings. Because sadly, they went to the promised land. Moses sent in the spies, and there were only two good spies out of the twelve. You remember the song, Twelve men went to spy out Canaan, ten were bad and two were good. Heard that song? Well, ten of them were bad and two were good. So sadly, most of the people listened to the ten bad spies instead of Caleb and Joshua. And so they spent 40 years wandering around in the wilderness. God had good reason to destroy his people in the wilderness because they repeatedly grumbled and, and complained. They were full of unbelief and idolatry. But again, the Lord refrains, and instead he treats them graciously. But why does he do it? Why does he treat them graciously? Look on the screen at Ezekiel chapter 20, verse 21. But the children rebelled against me. They did not walk in my statutes, were not careful to observe my ordinances, by whose observance man shall live. They profaned my Sabbaths. Then I thought I would pour out my wrath upon them and spend my anger against them in the wilderness, but I withheld my hand. Why? Why did God withhold his hand? It says, And he acted for the sake of my name, that it should not be profaned in the sight of the nations in whose sight I had brought them out. God didn't do it for the Israelites. He was acting for the sake of his name. Well, what's the next event after the wilderness wanderings? What happened next? Well, it's the conquest of Canaan, right? The conquest of Canaan took place. After all the older people died off, they eventually, 40 years later, went into the promised land. And that's what the book of Joshua is all about. The book of Joshua is recording how God gave the people of Israel victory over the nations in the land of Canaan. The end of the book we really find a clue to why God did this for his people. Why did God uh, allow this little insignificant group of people to conquer this land? Why did he give that little block of land to them? Well, Joshua 24 gives us the reason. Joshua chapter 24. We've come to the end of this book that's all about the conquest of Canaan. Joshua 24, verse 12. And I sent the hornet before you. That's God speaking, by the way. God sent the hornet before you, which drove them out before you, the two kings of the Amorites. It was not by your sword or by your bow. I gave you a land on which you had not labored in cities that you had not built. And you dwell in them. You eat the fruit of the vineyards and olive yards that you did not plant. Now, therefore, here, here's the result should be the result. Now, therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. Now, if you see those words there now uh, in, in that last verse, now, therefore, fear the Lord. That, that, that phrase is an inference from God's grace in giving Israel the land. God was gracious to them. They didn't deserve it. 
but God gave it to them. And they didn't even have to, they didn't even have to build the cities. They didn't have to plant the vineyards and the olive yards. And God gave it to them. So the logic shows that God's purpose here in giving them the land of Canaan was that they might fear and honor him and him alone. Him alone. In other words, in giving the land of Canaan to Israel, God is aiming here to create a people who would recognize his glory and delight in him above all other things. It says there at the end of verse 14, to serve the Lord, fear the Lord, serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Let's look at the beginning of the monarchy. God was meant to be their king of kings and lord of lords, but sadly they wanted to be like all the other nations. They wanted a king. And so there was this period of judges. That's the next book in your Bible, the book of Judges. And so we we see Israel's asking for a king. And even though the motive for asking for a king was evil, bad, wrong reasons, nevertheless, God didn't destroy them. In fact, God ends up answering the request. You look at... Turn to 1 Samuel, chapter 12. We see the beginning of the monarchy in Israel. 1 Samuel 12. We see his motive is very gracious. It's a gracious act of mercy on God's part. 1 Samuel, make sure you're in 1 Samuel, chapter 12, verse 19. Verse 19. And all the people said to Samuel, Pray for your servants to the Lord your God that we may not die. For we have added to all our sins this evil to ask for ourselves a king. And Samuel said to the people, Fear not, you have done all this evil, yet do not turn aside from the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. And do not turn aside after vain things which cannot profit or save, for they are empty. For the Lord will not cast away his people, for his great name's sake. Why did he do it? It's right there. For his great name's sake. Because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. Moreover, as for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you, and I will instruct you in the good and right way. Here, the preservation of the people is due to God's purpose to preserve and to display the honor of his name. That's why God preserved them. He could have destroyed them, but he didn't. It was for the purpose of his great name's sake. And this is the supreme goal and why God does what he does. Now I want you to turn your attention to the time of the kings. Obviously God ends up giving them a king. Remember King Saul was the first one. But I want you to think about the deliverance in the time of the kings. Because Israel was a small little nation surrounded by people who didn't like them. And and it's still that way today, isn't it? But we we see how God continues to preserve the nation of Israel. And we've seen it even here. But let me give you you a little um, background here. Because you remember after King Saul came King David and then there was Solomon. And the kingdom of Israel was divided into the northern and southern kingdoms. And one example of God's continued grace during this time and his continued purpose to be glorified and remain the honor of his name is is evident in the way that he intervened when Hezekiah was the king of Judah. 
the time period is, th think of it in the, the 1700s, or sorry, not 17, the 700s B.C. This is the time period. The Assyrians are the, the world power at this time. They are led by an, a man named Sennacherib. You can read about him in Isaiah. They were coming against the people of Judah. Hezekiah was the king at this time. The, the Assyrians had surrounded Jerusalem. And Hezekiah prayed to the Lord God for deliverance from his enemies. Isaiah the prophet brought God's answer. And it's found in 2 Kings chapter 19 on the screen. Verse 34. For I will defend this city to save it for my own sake and for the sake of my servant David. Do you see why God saved them? God saved them for his own sake. And you say, well, that, is that just a one-off thing? I mean, is that the only time that's mentioned? No, he actually says the same thing again in 2 Kings chapter 20. 2 Kings 20, it says, I will deliver you and this city out of the hand of the king of Assyria, and I will defend this city for my own sake and for my servant David's sake. <coughs> well, let's quickly move on to the, the period that we typically call the exile and the restoration period. Because you remember the Babylonians in 586 B.C. Uh, had surrounded Jerusalem, put a siege on Jerusalem, and Jerusalem fell to the invading Babylonians, and the Babylonians just destroyed everything. Except for the exiles. There were exiles they took back to Babylon. So the people of Judah were deported to Babylon. They became the, the slaves of the Babylonians, and it looked like God may be through with his people Israel. But what about God's holy name? Did God still care about his holy name? Was, was God still jealous for his name? Well, we soon discover that God was not finished with his chosen people yet. In fact, God is going to be merciful to them. And Isaiah makes this quite clear. God's purposes are the same as they always have been. Look at Isaiah chapter 48. Isaiah chapter 48, I put the reference up there for you. Isaiah 48, verse 9. God says, For my name's sake, I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise, I restrain it for you, that I may not cut you off. Behold, I have refined you, but not like silver. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction. For my own sake, for my own sake I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory... I will not give to another. Why did God save them? For his namesake, for his glory. Why did he let people like Ezra and Nehemiah go back, rebuild Jerusalem, and rebuild the, the temple? It's for his namesake, for his glory. By the way, my friends, salvation is not a room for you to boast. That does not give you grounds for boasting. You didn't save yourself. You don't keep yourself. And you're not going to glorify yourself. God does all that work. It really is an occasion for humility and joy on our part. When we recognize that God is the one who saves us, as just as God saved these people, they didn't do it. God did it. We have no room for boasting. We have no room for pride. It ought to cause humility in us. It ought to cause us to, to rejoice in what God has done, because he's glorifying himself. Well, let's look at the last part of your Old Testament, which is the, the post-exilic 
prophets. In other words, it's, it's, it's after the exile time. There were several prophets <coughs> mentioned in the Old Testament here that, that had something to say about this theme we're covering today. Uh, we're going to look at Zechariah, Haggai, and Malachi. And all three of these guys prophesied after Israel's return from exile. Each reflects a conviction that God's goal after the exile is still his own glory. The goal hasn't changed. It's his glory that is God's main concern. Zechariah prophesied concerning the rebuilding of Jerusalem. He says in Zechariah chapter 2, verse 5, I will be the glory of her midst. Why did God want the temple rebuilt? So that he would get the glory. Haggai made the same exact point in chapter 1. He says, build the house that I may be glorified. Malachi criticized the wicked priest of the new temple when he said, they will not take it to heart to give honor to my name. What was his concern? God's concern was his glory. And the new prophets weren't doing that. Well, that ends the Old Testament. See, I told you it wouldn't take too long. The fastest you probably ever heard the Old Testament preached through, didn't you? All right, let's move to the New Testament. Does anything change in the New Testament? Not really. We move from an age of promise in the Old Testament to the age of fulfilled promises in the New Testament. Promises were made in the Old Testament. Promises were fulfilled in the New the hope for Messiah that you read about all through the Old Testament. He finally came, but God's supreme goal doesn't change through, through all Old and New Testament. But there are some circumstances that change. How is, how is God achieving his goal? Well, that, that changes. And so before we move into this new section, I want to remind you what the Bible says, because the Bible says that you and I are to be like Christ. We are to be Christ-like. In other words, we're to allow ourselves, as Romans 12, 2 says, to be pressed into the mold of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the mold, and you are to allow yourself to be pressed into that mold, to get into every little nook and cranny of that mold, so that you look and you talk and you think just like Jesus. But what is Christ like? Well, if we can answer this question, then we know how we are to live then, don't we? We know how we're to think and, and talk. Well, let's look at Jesus' life and ministry when he was here on earth. We get a little clue to this. How did Jesus live? What was his life and ministry like? Well, there's, there's two texts, all right? <laughs> Don't freak out, because Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John talk about Jesus' life and ministry. We're not going to look at it all four books. I just want to give you a, a, a little glimpse, a little hint, if you will. There's two texts here from the Gospel of John that show Jesus' life and ministry <coughs> for us. Excuse me. John chapter 17, verse 4, Jesus prayed at the end of his life. Here's what he says. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. That's Jesus' prayer toward the end of his life. He's, what is he doing? He's, he's devoted to glorifying God. That is his whole purpose for living. That was the purpose of his ministry. And then in John 7, verse 18, John 7, verse 18, when he was... He's referring to his own ministry in John 7. Here's what Jesus said, quote, The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. But the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. 
Therefore, we can say with certainty as we look at just those two verses alone, that Jesus' all-consuming desire and his deepest purpose while he was on this earth was to glorify his Father in heaven, right? The purpose was to glorify his Father in heaven. And how did he do that? By doing his Father's will. We see it over and over. He's come to do his Father's will, and he did it. So I ask you, how Christ-like are you? How Christ-like are you? Do you glorify the Father by doing his will? That shows you how much you are like Christ. Well, second of all, let's look at Christ's death and see what we can learn from Christ's death. In John chapter 12, you can turn there, John 12, Jesus was, uh, he, he was thinking about escaping the hour of his death, but he rejected that alternative because he wanted to finish his mission of glorifying the Father. It, it crossed his mind, but he didn't do it. Why did he not do it? Why did he go to the cross? John 12, verse 27. John 12, 27. Jesus says, Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. Why did Jesus come? What was the purpose of his death? We often think, and, and it's true, one of the purposes was to save his people. But according to this passage, God's purpose was to glorify his name. So the purpose of Jesus' death was to glorify the Father. To be willing as the Son of God to suffer this kind of a loss was glorifying to God. He's doing it in order to vindicate the honor of his name and the worth of his glory. See, there was a problem. Ever since Genesis chapter 3, those of us, all human beings created in God's image, were not being mirrors shining forth God's glory. The image had been marred. So God had to come and rescue and repair that broken mirror, if you will. That's what Jesus did on the cross. He came to vindicate the honor of his Father's name and the worth of his glory, and, and it required the death of his Son to accomplish that. So Christ suffered. He died for the glory of his Father. Now, to be sure, the death of Christ is also showing God's love for us. That's pretty clear, right? God so loved the world that he gave his only Son. But we're not at the center of things. We are not the center of the universe. We're not the thing that's the most important here. God is. And so I ask you again, are you Christ-like? Well, let's change gears a bit to think about the Christian life. Let's think about the Christian life. Because the Bible talks a lot about the Christian life in the New Testament, right? Most of your New Testament is filled up with letters to churches and church leaders. It tells us what the church is to do, what we are to be. And so Christ's passion for the glory of God leads inevitably to the conclusion here that God's purpose for the church is that our life goal should be to glorify God. It's pretty clear from 1 Corinthians 10, verse 31 on the screen. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, 
do all to the glory of God. How much are you to do to God's glory? Everything. You're to eat to God's glory. You are to go to work for God's glory. You are to drink for God's glory. You are to sleep for God's glory. You are to talk for God's glory. You are to play sports for God's glory. You are to go and study for God's glory. Everything we do is for God's glory. Peter shows us the goal of our service for God in 1 Peter 4.11. Did I put that up there? 1 Peter 4.11 says, Whoever serves, let him do it as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Well, there's another passage. I hope you're familiar with Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, Jesus is instructing his disciples. It's known as part of the Sermon on the Mount. He's instructing his disciples what their goal should be in their daily living. And Jesus says in Matthew 5, 16, Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and so that you can be puffed up and have a big head and people would praise you. Is that what it says? No. <laughs> but that's often what we do, right? We want to do good works so people will praise us, pat us on the back and say, Oh, good boy, good girl. No, that's, 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 we missed the whole point if that's what we're doing. Jesus said you are to do these good works so that you can give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Well, how does the Bible end? The Bible ends by talking about the second coming of Christ. It ends by talking about heaven. And can we see the same goal? What is God's goal in history? Well, we can see the same thing here even in the last part of your Bible. By the way, I want to start by looking at 2 Thessalonians. In 2 Thessalonians, it talks a lot about the second coming of Christ. It's describing this blessed hope. But it also talks about terror. Because those who don't know Christ, the, the most dreadful thing in the universe will be to meet Jesus Christ. There would be nothing worse than that. Paul says of those who do not believe the gospel, look what he says, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 9. Paul's talking about these people who do not believe the gospel. Look what he says about them. He says, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. When he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints, and to be marveled at in all who have believed, because our testimony to you was believed. Why is Jesus coming again? To be glorified. Jesus is coming again. He's coming back not only to bring the final salvation of his people, but through his salvation and even through destruction. We He's going to be glorified. Notice it says glorified in his saints. He is going to be marveled at. That's why he's coming again. And we turn to Revelation chapter 21. It's on the screen. The, 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 the final comment concerning history's climax in the book of Revelation. This is amazing. Look what it says about God. The Apostle John here, by the way, he's picturing the new Jerusalem, which is the capital city of heaven, 
and he's talking about the glorified church here. And look what he says. This, this city, the new Jerusalem, the capital of heaven, has no need of sun or moon to shine on it. Why? For the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. Who's the Lamb? The Son of God, Jesus Christ. The glory of the new Jerusalem, the capital city of heaven, is Jesus Christ and God himself. God the Father, God the Son, both here described as the light, the glory in in which we as Christians are going to live forever and ever, for all eternity. This is the perfect conclusion, if you will, of God's goal in all of history. What is the perfect conclusion of God's goal in all of history? It's, of course, to display his glory to all, to see and to praise him and worship him and him alone. So my question is this. What may we conclude from this survey of redemptive history? We've flown quickly over the forest of redemptive history through the Bible here. Have you answered the ultimate question yet? Have you? What is the chief end of God? What is the chief end of God? Well, hopefully your answer is is this conclusion, that the chief end of God is to glorify God and enjoy himself forever. The same answer as the chief end of mankind. What is the chief end of man and woman? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. So your purpose should be matching up with God's purpose in everything he does. He's the one who stands supreme at the center of his own affections. He loves himself the most. You say, well, that, that just sounds wrong, because we're not supposed to love ourselves that much. What gives God the right to love himself that much? It would be wrong for him to love something that is below him, wouldn't it? Everything is below God. If he loved something more than he loves himself, then he would cease to be God. God is the greatest. God is the most beautiful. God's the best. He is is the biggest. He's the most powerful. He's the most all-knowing. There is nothing as good as him, and nothing is superior than him. So he must love himself the most. He must direct our love and our affections and our delights to himself. If he doesn't, then, then we're loving things that aren't the greatest and aren't the best, right? Do you see a problem with that? I hope you do. God rightfully deserves all worship and praise and honor and glory. For that very reason, he is the one who is self-sufficient. He is the inexhaustible fountain of grace. And so our response then is that we're to love him, to worship him, and trust him. <clears throat> to obey Him and serve Him and to live supremely for His honor and glory, for His name's sake. That's why God does what He does. So my question for you, as we think about our application of this, is are you living for God's glory? Are you living? Is your whole purpose for existence, is it for God's name's sake? So we ask that great philosophical question, why are we here Well, you want purpose for life? That gives you purpose for life. (laughs) 
Nobody should be going and committing suicide who understands this truth. If you understand you are here to bring God glory, you are here for His name's sake, to serve Him and love Him and worship Him, that gives you purpose in life. You understand why you're here. And it also gives you purpose for the next life, by the way. (laughs) Because the next great philosophical question is, where am I going? I know where I've come from. God created me. I know why I'm here. It's to bring God glory. It's for His name's sake. So that means in the next life, is anything going to change? No. The next life, it's the same reason. It's the same purpose. Our purpose for existence is to bring Him glory. It's, it's all for Him, for His worship, for His praise. My friends, how are you doing? I know, if you're like me, you're, you're, you, you want to crawl underneath the, uh, underneath the chair. You, you say, well, I'm not doing a very good job at that. <laughs> I'm not doing what Jesus talked about in Matthew 5 or in 1 Corinthians. You know, I'm not doing all to the glory of God. I'm not... My good works, I'm, I'm doing them for myself. They're not, I'm not doing them to bring God glory. Well, you know what you should do? You know what the solution is? Same as everything. Repent of your sin. Confess your sin to God. And you know what God says in 1 John 1, 9? He's faithful and just to forgive you of your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. So my friends, don't crawl under the chair. Run to the God who wants to forgive you of your sin. We all have idols of our hearts. We all, we're all in the same boat there. So you run to the God who wants to forgive you of that sin. And you forsake your sin and you worship him and serve him and love him and live supremely for his glory. May God help us to do that. Let's pray.